Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne, and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and special seasonal gift sets. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansoapery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends ya. Also, little side note, please feel free to check out Little Bean Soapery out in person at the upcoming Monster Mania Outdoor Little Mall of Horrors. May 22nd and 23rd in Oaks, PA, as they will be bringing some themed items, including cauldron bombs, brain scrubs, jiggle soap, and embalmed cold process soaps. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hi, this is Ed Cranepool, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. All right, folks, looking forward to this conversation here. And this guy on the phone is truly New York born and bred. That also happened to do something I don't think many New Yorkers have done. This gentleman was born in the Bronx and grew up to become a New York Met starting at 17 years old. And he has true New York running through his blood, like we said. He spent his entire career as a first baseman, but also spent some time in the outfield. He is part of the New York Mets Hall of Fame and the famous... 1969 World Series champions. This guest, Ed Cranepool. Ed, 
Good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Very well now. That's good. Well, before we get into the fun stuff, baseball and all, I got to ask because it was newsworthy. Not that it's not newsworthy with everybody, but from what I understand, you had some health issues and ended up with an organ transplant. So I want to know how you're feeling and how's things going for you on a health front? Well, I'm feeling great. It's almost two years um, since I've had the transplant. And uh, fortunately for everybody, there was four people involved in the organ transplant. So we helped two people. Two of us got organs and our two donors are doing well. So everybody is, 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 is doing very well this summer. Well, that's good to know. And if I read it correctly, because we know everything online is true in this day and age, you had a living donor, correct? Yes, I did. We used four, uh, two, two living donors. We helped a fireman who received an organ, myself, and uh, the donors was the fellow's wife who gave me her kidney, and uh, the police officer we gave uh, um, the fireman's the uh, kidney. So two of us uh, survived, and uh, so we have four people with one kidney and two healthy people. So it's been great. It's, it was a wonderful operation. It went well in Stony Brook. Hospital did a great job, but myself, Dr. Darius, was the gentleman in charge. You know, he loves to transplant and tells me it's going to be 50 years I can get out of this kidney. So I'm looking for a long life. That's good to hear and glad to hear that all parties involved are doing well. Obviously, we've been dealing with COVID a little over the past year and such. So there's that. But everything else good in your life, Ed? Well, everything else is quiet because the last 14 months we've been, uh, you know, inside and uh, we can't take the risk, you know, so we've been, you know, by ourselves and, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult for everybody in the country. We're all suffering at this particular juncture and we just hope that we can see light at the end of the tunnel and uh, with the vaccines that we've all gotten. I've been vaccinated with both of the shots and uh, looking forward to uh you know, this coming to an end in a couple of months and hopefully everybody is well. And, you know, so many people, we've lost so many people because of COVID and it's very difficult times for everybody, but, you know, only the strong survive. So let's just hope everything goes well for the next couple of months. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned a vaccine and I'm not going to sit here because obviously there's people both sides of the fence on the fence. I've had my vaccine as well, but I will say, before people go and judge, at least talk to the doctors, look at the science, and try to make an informed decision. Well, that's what you have to do, obviously. Uh, you know, but when you're in the senior environment like myself, you know, at this stage, you can't take the risk that a young person might be able to do that, you know, but I don't think uh, I want to put myself at risk. So I still follow my own uh, judgment. I wear a mask when I think it's appropriate. And of course, I, I was vaccinated and I didn't have any side effects. And let's just hope down the road uh, it continues that way. But I do take a lot of medication for my anti-rejection of my organs. So uh, this is the reason that I have to be very careful that I don't you know, put myself you know, in a high-risk situation. Exactly. And I, like I said, we just hope that everybody tries to make an informed decision when it comes to that stuff. So. Well, they have to. Nobody can force anybody to do anything. But I think, you know, as long as we can, if we can cure this thing and, and uh, prevent it from spreading, that's the big key that uh, we, you know, want to save as many people as we can. 
exactly. But let's jump into the fun stuff. And obviously, we're still early into baseball season. And I know you said you've been spending time at home with COVID and everything else like that. But obviously, you are a Met through and through and a lifer, I would say. But what's your take on the current season we've seen so far? Well, I think it's very frustrating to the Mets. Uh, we expected more. We expected a quicker start. But you know what? You have to be patient. It's it's a long season. You know, it's a marathon. It's not a race. It's not a sprint. So we have to give some of the young players a chance to, uh, you know, come out of their slumps. You know, the acquisition of Lindor at shortstop right now does not look like the best thing that, that happened to the Mets. But you have to give them, give them time to... Uh, explore all those options out there and do well. And uh, like I say, it's they've only played 25 games so far, but uh, they have 125 to go. So, it's you know, we want to see a, a successful year. It's, it should be exciting. They've had the nucleus of young players that they can build around, and, and they're pretty good players. They're a lot better than they're showing right now. The offense is, is dragging a little bit, and it's a shame that a pitcher like DeGrom who starts, has started the year off 2-2, two and two, could be 4-0. and oh. Anyone that's pitching with uh, the way he's pitching, he should have four victories. You know, but, uh, you know, he's got bad luck all the time. But uh, I hope they score some runs for him because it can get a little depressing. But he's a great pitcher, and uh, some of their arms have held up. So it should be exciting, and I certainly wish him well. And can't wait to get out to the ballpark. I haven't been out there yet, but maybe I can bring them good luck in the next week or so. There you go. Is there anybody in particular, as we're talking the current crop of Mets, that really stand out for you to go? Obviously, you mentioned the Lindor, the shortstop, and the Grom and such. But is there somebody on this current crop that stands out to you? Well, you got to say the first baseman, Alonzo, has come into his own, and he should certainly proved he's a power hitter. You know, and, and uh, you build around him, and McNeil is a proven 300 hitter, and Nimmo is a good young player, and he's playing well for the Mets as a leadoff hitter. He's doing well, so they've got a lot of kids that uh, certainly you can build around, and, and they, they should be better, and they know it. They're working hard, so you can't say anything about that. It's just a matter of not scoring enough runs, but uh, you go in streaks, and let's just hope they get into a hot streak and uh, – you know, they can perform the way that they're capable of performing. Well, I want to talk about you a little bit, if that's okay. And I know some people have issue with that. Like I said in the introduction, you practically grew up playing professional baseball, being that you started as a 17-year-old kid playing with men. And I found it interesting when doing my homework on you, Ed, was that if I read it correctly, you were a roommate of one Frank Thomas, who was 35 at the time. How much influence did Frank have on you? Well, Frank and I, Frank and I, you know, got along real well. And of course he, he was an experienced veteran and he was, he participated and helped me, you know, learn the league as quickly as you can, but socially you don't have anything in common with him when you're 17 and somebody's 35. But Frank was a great guy. He was a good hitter. He'd been around the league a long time, and, and he was a proven player in the league. And, and I was very fortunate in the early years. The Mets uh, players, or older players, established players they brought to New York. So they all helped me. I was very fortunate to be around Duke Snyder in the beginning, Warren Spawn in the beginning, 
you know, other great players that uh, had great careers. And they were all gentlemen. They all tried to work with you. They knew I was young and coming up. So, I mean, the, the ball club in New York was, was great because we had a lot of older Giants and Dodger players coming over here. They were the fan favorites. And they all worked with me. And Gil Hodges was the one that taught me how to play first base. And later on, he becomes my manager. But, um, you know, having have these guys around you to give you the fundamentals is certainly important. And, and that's the way... You can have a long career. You fundamentally play sound baseball. You'll stick around a long time. Exactly. You mentioned another or two names that I had in my notes there. One being Gil Hodges. And you played with him, correct, before he became manager? Yes. He was with the Mets in 62. And I think in 63, he wound up going down to Washington uh, in a, a player deal. And he became the manager of Washington. And he was a great guy. And, of course, he was our leader. In 68 and 69, he turned the culture of the Mets around. And we could have won more pennants if he didn't pass away for us on us in 72. And it's a conversation because he was a player then turned manager that I have with folks from time to time in terms of, you know, guys who would be superstar athletes may not make the best coaches. How do you think Gil handled that transition to be? A well-known player, uh, too. Well, yeah, that was like he, he was born for the job because he was good disciplinarian. He was a Marine coming out of the service there, you know, and, and he had strong, uh, you know, ethics. And he made us all better players because you played his way or, or he got rid of you. So, you know, you got to be a leader, and he certainly was a leader. And like I said, the Mets could have won more pennants under his uh, guidance, and we would have been a better ball club. Yogi Berra took over for Gil, and it was like night and day because it was a very relaxed atmosphere. And sometimes the manager has to be ahead of the curve, and Gil always was ahead of the curve. Unfortunately, he should be in the Hall of Fame. His playing record was, was, was as good as a lot of people that are in the Hall of Fame, and certainly his managerial uh, capabilities were better than most of them because he anticipated what was going on, and he programmed people to be a good uh, a good player. If you look like in certain sports, you have more thinking of football. Certain coaches are better than others because they're they're really programmed and they they prepare themselves so well. And Gil was always ready for the next situation that was coming up. Well, obviously, a big thing, and the game has obviously changed since you played. There's a lot of folks, and I'm not one for it. I understand why they do it, analytics, but I, I'm also a person that, and I haven't played professional ball, but I would think a lot of it has to deal with good instinct and experience. And Well, I think that's what Gil had. I, mm-hmm. I believe you're 100% correct. Uh, analytics is great. You can use it, but it's just a part of the game. You can't just go strictly on numbers. I think you have to have a gut feeling on certain players in certain situations, and uh, that's that's why he was such a good manager. He did things, you know, according to the book sometimes, and then other times he was willing to gamble with certain players. And, of course, it proved them right, and we won the pennant in the World Series in 69. And we were competitive the next year, and then he passes on when we had made some moves and we could have been a better ball club in 72. And we finally won in 73, and those were all players that Gil had chosen and molded and made us all better. 
Exactly. And transactions that I noticed during a career, and you mentioned them a few minutes ago, Warren Svon, that you ended up giving your number 21 to him and began wearing number seven, which you're famous for wearing throughout the rest of your career. Was that a something you were prompt to do or was that something you said, you know, I respect this guy so much. Let me see if I can make a trade with him number wise. No, no, I gave it up myself voluntarily. Uh, he joined the ball club, the winner of 74. And, uh, you know, he was with us in 75 and it became lucky for me. I got number seven and they wanted the infielders to have lower numbers, but I wound up making the all-star team in 75. But, uh, you know, uh, Warren Spawn was a great player, a whole flamer. That's the least you could do as a young player. 21 had no significance to myself. That was just the first number they gave me when I was working out with the Mets. And uh, once I made the Mets, I just kept wearing it. So I wore it for a couple of years. But it was nothing that I really chose, you know, number 21. I was a Yankee fan growing up. I love Mickey Mantle. He was a great player. And if you could have an idol, you might as well have a guy like Mickey. Exactly. You know, and he, he just so happened to wear number seven, go figure. Well, except he started with number six. Yes. Which, so, I mean, he could have been number six, but the, the Mets gave me that number. It was, there was a couple of low numbers that were available, and I chose number seven. Exactly. <clears throat> and as we're on the topic of teammates, I want to bring up three, if you can maybe give me a brief little thing on them. And one I heard you talk about previously, Tom Seaver, who we lost last year. Right. But also, I wanted to bring up during that same conversation, you were having was some guy who ended up becoming another hall of fame pitcher named uh, Nolan Ryan. What, what can you tell me about those guys before I bring up the third name? Well, I mean, my friends on the ball club were actually Tug McGraw and, and Ron Sabota. Um, I was friendly with Tom Seaver. He had a tremendous career in New York he was the best pitcher in baseball and he got traded. And that was take like taking the, the blood out of the Mets. And then, you know, that was a deal that should have been made, obviously. And Nolan Ryan was a situation that uh, when he joined the ball club, he was the hardest thrower probably in the game. But he never had the consistency, nor would he have ever developed, I think, in New York. First of all, he wasn't a New Yorker. He didn't like it in New York. His wife wasn't happy. But Nolan wasn't getting an opportunity to work himself every fourth day consistently. So he was never able to develop and, and get the control that he needed. Once he got the opportunity in California, they put him out there every fourth day and he developed to become a star. We didn't get enough enough back for him, unfortunately. You know, Jim Fergosi, when he came over in the trade, along with three other players, uh, I think he was past his prime and he just made a bad choice of getting you know, the ability back. Uh, no one you knew had the potential. But there's a difference between potential and production, so you have to develop. I don't think he would ever develop because he was always behind Seaver, Kuzman, and Gentry on our staff. So in early in the year in April, you know, no one was always pushed back. So he was pitching every seventh and eighth day. And that's not good for your consistency. But he turned out to be a great pitcher. And, you know, he was a great teammate. You know, we always got along great. But the Mets had great pitching over the years and they developed them. And none of them got hurt. They pitched long careers, very successful, and that was the big, you know, big thing with the Mets pitching and defense. 
and that's the way we figured on winning all the games. And like you said there, he Nolan may not pitch except for every seven or eighth day there. And many people may not realize back in the day, like in that era, it was only a four-man rotation at the time. That's right. And when he pitched, we, we never knew what was going to come out of the box. You know, he could have a great game, you know, strike out a lot of people or he could walk a lot of people and there was no consistency. So it was pretty difficult for most of them. Well, you knew what you were going to get from Seaver, Kuzman, and Gentry. You know, and they pitched every time. And if a rain came in there and somewhere along the line, they would push, you know, pull Nolan back. And he wasn't very happy with that. Understandably so. But you actually mentioned the third name I was going to bring up. And obviously, I was born at the end of his career. So I only knew him as a sportscaster then. Phillies alumni, because I grew up in the Philadelphia area, Tug McGraw. And well, Tug was such a character. Do you have any good Tug stories? Well, Tug was a character. You know, anything could happen with him. You never knew what to expect, you know, after the ball game. You know, he celebrated life. He believed every day was uh, New Year's Eve and was going to have a good time. But uh, on the mound, he wanted a pitch. He developed that screwball and he became a great believer for and I roomed with him for five years. So I was, you know, very fond of him. And uh, we had a great time on the road. And then later on, I roomed with Sabota. So uh, I had a couple of good roommates and uh, still friendly with Ronnie. I still talk to him. He's down in New Orleans. And we still uh, frequent each other's houses. And our wives are friendly. And uh, it's great. We lost Tug too long. Uh, I mean, too short. I mean, he yeah. died very young. He had cancer. I was with him before he went to spring training and then three weeks later he gets a, uh, um, a medical report after going for a physical that uh, he had six months to live and it was very sad for everybody so um, it wasn't something we wanted to hear but uh, his son uh, you know got some doctors and he bought him about a year but it was a very sad uh, ending to a great guy yeah exactly because I was going to say, I know he lasted a little longer than that initial six-month prognosis. But, right. Right. But let, let's remember the good stuff about Tug, that's for sure, and the funny memories and what he brought to both Philadelphia and New York as far as the baseball front. Well, you know, he was noted for that slogan, you got to believe, with 73 Mets, and uh, that was exciting. And, uh, you know, he brought a lot of flair to the game and a lot of excitement, and he won again down at Philadelphia because he was a good pitcher. But uh, that was my roommate, and, uh, you know, I always enjoyed visiting Philadelphia and seeing him and having a good time together. Yeah, he's one of those rare guys, at least not only in baseball, but I would say life in general, that you never hear a bad thing about the guy. No, I would, I, you shouldn't hear a negative comment. But, uh, you know, we had a great team. The Mets had a great organization. They had a lot of young players that grew up together and we all developed uh, under, like I said, Gil and some of the managers that we had. And, and we stayed together a long time. And that's why 69 will go down as one of the teams that uh, people don't uh, forget. They want to talk about it. It's been exciting. It's been a great existing in New York. I've been in New York my whole life. And nobody will let you walk down the streets. If they recognize you, they want to talk about the 69 Mets. So uh, it's been a great uh, run in New York for myself. 
especially, like I said, in the intro, being a hometown guy born in the Bronx and such. But two more questions for you, Ed. And first off, like I had mentioned, you were inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame in 1990. I know some people go, well, it's not the Baseball Hall of Fame or it's not this or it's not that. What does the Mets Hall of Fame mean to you? Well, it means that, that you were recognized as one of the better players in their organization. And you had longevity, you had performance. You know, not everybody gets invited to, to be in, involved in the Hall of Fame. So, yes, it's not Cooperstown, but certainly every ball club is represented with their team that uh, the fans enjoyed and watched play. So, you know, when people say it, it's not this, it's not that, or they've got negative things to do, let them check the books. And let them check their own records because if they're sitting on their fanny in their living room and they can critique a player and be negative about them, just show me their records and I'll see if they've performed in the, in the level that we've performed over the years. Well, the thing I read too, and I believe they were still in the Norfolk area at the time, but you had a little transition in 70 going down to Tidewater where you considered it a demotion, but it ended up becoming a turning point in your career, becoming a useful hitter in your own words. What was it a time period that made you go, you know what? I can, I still have something here. Yeah. But you know, um, I got, I got sent out in 70, you know, you, when you're not playing, you, you, you develop, you know, rust and, and you have to perform. You can't sit around and, uh, you know, and uh, be a productive hitter. So you go out. Now they use it. To, you know they have that uh, designated uh, roster where they're sending guys out every week because you guy can't sit around. You've got to perform. You go down to the minors. You just um, um, you know improve your trade. And if you can hit, you can hit. When you hit 350 in the minors, they got to bring you back up because you're too good for the minors. So so I always did well in the minor leagues, and that's not the you know, a thing that you worry about, but you perform in, in New York and you've got to play well for the kids. Look at Lindor. He just got a contract for $350 million and they're booing him two weeks into the season. So uh, maybe the fans or the, or the critique can pick the players. I think at the end of the season, that's, that's the time to evaluate what he did. Right now it's early, but, um, you know, the Met organization was a good organization for myself, and I still do public relations for them. And I'm still proud of being a member of their organization for all these years since 1962. Like I said, you were a true lifer in a sense. But final question for you, and I know this may or may not be difficult to answer, being self-reflective. But when they bring up your name, when pe- baseball fans or Met fans or whoever talking and bring up your name what do you think people will talk about whether it's today or 50 years from now or whatever the case may be well i think that i was i was there for a long time and i was productive for the ball ball club i led the the team in in almost all the offensive records you know all all the records at chase stadium i hold uh you know as far as hits and stuff like that and then later on other guys have come along and passed some of them, but uh, you have to be productive to be with an organization as long as I was for 18 years. I had the most games after 50 years or 55 years of an organization in existence. I, I played more games than anybody around. So I've got a lot of things that are still positive and fans appreciate 
that you played when you were called upon. You don't make the lineup out, so you can't uh, tell the managers when to play. I did things to help the ball club, and that's that's key. Did I want to play more some years? Definitely. I didn't like the platoon system, but you know what? It is what it is, and uh, the career was a long one. It was fun, and I'm glad I was in the World Series. Ed, thank you so much for your time. have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars however None of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as besides getting their autographs you can do live zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people. Greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions check them out and see the options they have. SignatureHorror.com that's right, SignatureHorror.com Hi, this is Vince Patale from the movie Invincible, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. It's where you really want to get the real story, the Invincible story. 